Welcome to another podcast from Generations Church. We trust you will be encouraged today. Um, we are starting a new series right now on prayer. And I just want to say as we begin, just please cancel all your notions about what you think prayer is about. Because in my understanding, observance, estimation, uh, as a pastor over this church, but also as a, as a co-laborer with thousands of other pastors in the kingdom of God, uh, we still don't get it. And so what I would like you to do is set aside your presumption and hear from the Spirit of God again for the first time what it means and what God is looking for in the relationship He wants with you. Prayer is a part of it. It's a huge central part of our relationship with God. But I can tell you this, that prayer has far more to do with your worship of God than your request of God. That's what we're going to begin on. Prayer has much more to do with the worship of who He is than your requests of Him. Because in the same way, I appreciate what Jana shared this morning for the offering exhortation. God doesn't need to eat meat. He, 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 do, he doesn't need those things. We do. And, and we often, all too often, we try to relate to God as though He was human, but God doesn't need us to relate to Him though He is human. God needed to relate to us as human so we could access Him. And we need to keep some of these foundational doctrinal realities in order. Otherwise, we get caught up in all kinds of strange things, and we end up in strange places with a, with a faith that doesn't seem to work. And so I want to start this series by asking you a rather simple but maybe profound question. Are you ready for the question? Yes, thank you. Somebody on this side is going to have to up your game. Okay? Who, who, somebody raise your hand. Who's going to up your game over here this morning? Okay. Thanks, Luke. Luke, I tell you what, Luke is going to be a mighty man of God. He is already a mighty boy of God. He comes, you know, he comes and he puts his hand on me and he prays for me every Sunday for the last three Sundays in a row. I don't know why, but I think the Holy Spirit's leading him to do some things. And man, that, just so you know, Luke, is just the beginning of what God wants to talk to you about and do through you. So you just keep doing what God says, okay, bud? It's great. And he's got a big old, big wide smile on his face right now, nodding his head. So he gets it. Here's the question, though. How normal is your relationship with God? How normal is your relationship with God? Now, that's a weird question, I know. And it's a really loaded question. How normal? What do you mean, how normal is my relationship with God? Um, But I want you to think about it because the question leads to another question. How normal is your relationship with God leads to the the logical next question, which would be, well, normal relative to what? Right? Because that's the problem with normal. Normal is relative to something, but the question has to become, well, what is normal relative? And if that's the case, then would normal even be a good thing? Here's the truth. You may or may not ask yourself that question, but I promise you, if and when you ask yourself that question, you are asking it in comparison to something. 
And what you compare it to matters a great deal because it will either then provide an accurate answer or it will provide something that is far from accurate and lead you to a place you don't want to be. Let me try to bring it uh, down from heavenly terms of our Father in heaven to earthly terms. How, how normal is your marriage, married people? How normal is your marriage? Um, the problem with the question, of course, is that it's got the wrong words in it. Because we use normal for a lot of things that aren't quantified by normalcy. And so here's a better question maybe. Uh, how passionate is your marriage? Now some of you right away, geez, Pastor Trav, there's kids here. Because the word passion is a very sexualized word for you. And it should be in a good marriage. Passion should be indicative of a great sex life. I know some of you are really covering your kids' ears all of a sudden, but I tell you what, you're not doing them any favors by not showing them what a great marriage could look like and not showing them what passion should look like in relationship and intimacy and all those things. And for those of you weirdo pervos who think only sex when you hear the word passion, well, you're, you're being weird about that. Passion is much more than physical intimacy, isn't it? And you know that. I know that you know that. But, but hang with me in this. Here's what normal means. Normal, by definition, is simply the usual, the average, or the typical state or condition of something. So let's take this to a logical next step. So how normal something is has to do more with frequency than what it's accomplishing. It has more to do with frequency. If I say it's the normal temperature for this time of year, what, what, would, we, what would we base that in? Well, we'd base that in the historical data of the temperature of all the years before in the month of January. And so we would know that it is normal to see minus 40 in January because we've seen it over many, many years. And because we live here, we also know that it can be normal to see plus 5 in January. Because when God created the north for some reason, he thought he would just make this very confusing dichotomy of weather patterns. And we can go from minus 45 to plus 5 in about two days here. And it's weird and it's kind of wonderful that we get to live in some place that's so unique, isn't it? All these other people who live in plus 25 to 28 degrees Celsius their entire lives, I mean, <laughs> whatever. I don't, I don't know if they're the losers or we're the losers. I have no idea. But uh, somebody is losing. I just don't know if it's us, okay? But, but we, we understand normal as, as actually as a measurement or a judgment of frequency. And the problem is we try to make normal a state of being. And so when I ask you how normal your relationship with God is, you actually can't give me an answer without the context and the knowledge of relationship and history. And where this leaves us is as a group of people with a whole bunch of un untrue assumptions of what it actually means to be normal. So how normal is for you is for you. And it's hard to compare normal to others in a way that really gives us information. Based on the averages of people's responses, I don't think I want my relationship with God to be normal at all. If you ask me today, especially because I'm preaching this message, hey, Pastor Trapp, do you feel like your relationship with God is normal? I would probably act somewhat offended by the question. Because I've never wanted a normal relationship with God as if I could ever wrap my head around what that actually meant. 
I wanted to have the most amazing relationship with God that I could possibly have. I don't, I don't want to settle for anything less than his best. I even pray that way. I've always prayed since I was a very young man, Lord, I want your will. But then I read in the Bible that we could do God's uh, good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I'm like, oh, that to me, that's, there's a perfect will of God out there. So that's what I want to aspire to. Not just his generic sovereign will, but his precise, powerful, individual will that is tailored to the good works he created in me beforehand to do so I would walk in them. That kind of a, that kind of a relationship with God. And I'm saddened to see over the many years that I've actually been a pastor now to see how many followers of Jesus are settling for some kind of mediocre, passionless life with Christ. And I understand right away some of you are going to jump the gap and begin to, to rush into, oh, this is one of those messages about emotionalism and, and, and pastors are always just trying to stir people up. Guys, it's not the pastor who's trying to stir you up. It's the Spirit of God who is trying to stir you up. Because if you imagine, and here's a problem, so many people don't imagine the relationship with God. And as Tolkien said to C.S. Lewis before he got saved, the problem that C.S. Lewis had with coming to faith was a lack of imagination. And when Tolkien said that to C.S. Lewis, it was foundational in what changed his thinking, and he moved from being an atheist to a follower of Christ. It's your lack of imagination that is limiting what God could do in your life. And so don't get worried about emotionalism. Emotionalism and, and, and all of the things associated with that are easy to see. And I can assure you right now as a church, we're not anywhere near that boundary line, so don't even worry about it. I will start, I will start hollering out to you, you're getting too crazy if you start getting too crazy. All right? Can we have, can we have a, a little trust deal on that? Trust the ones who are, trust us. If we're leading you, trust us to help you find the brakes if you need the brakes. But mostly what I feel like we're doing is trying to help people find the gas pedal still. It's to the right of the brake pedal. Here, actually, and other places too. I drove a car in Jamaica a couple years ago. I was actually surprised that the gas pedal was still to the right of the brake pedal. I always assumed, I guess, that when you drive on the wrong side of the road, literally everything was backwards. It's not the case. They still gas with their right and brake with their right also, but to the left of the pedal. Unless you're, unless, you're, unless you're a crazy race car driver and then you use both feet to brake and gas. Anyways, um, sliding wildly off topic in that little analogy. So how normal is for you is for you, and I don't want a normal relationship with God. I want my relationship with God to do or accomplish something in me and in those around me. Now here's my question. Do you not also want the same thing? Okay, good. There's a few yeps and amens. I appreciate that. So I think that as believers, we've often settled for hitting the target, but we don't actually declare the target until something is hit. This is shooter speak, and, and the, the saying we have is, I'm an excellent marksman. I just shoot into the dirt, and whatever I hit, I call the bullseye. I call the target. And, and I have shot guns with people who are just like that. Oh, did you see that? See what? Well, I, I hit exactly what I was aiming at. Well, how do we know you hit exactly what you're aiming at? You just shot into the bank. Right? So having a, having a target identified. Now, now this, this whole, just give me a little, I'll give you a little, a little not a foreshadow, but I'm going to give you kind of 
the flavor of where this is going to go because the flavor of my life that God has been leading me in is around the word intentional. See, what you're intentional about will change who you are. What you choose to be intentional about will change your patterns. It will change your life. It will change the people around you. And it actually, it's actually more about learning to be intentional about the things that are good or right or what God is putting in front of you rather than checking the boxes after the fact to say, oh, we did it. See, because we as human beings often like to be box checkers. And I know that I rail against box checking in this church quite often. If you go back, listen, historically over the 15 years of our church, you would hear this said a lot. I reference box checking and not in a great way. And it's not that checking boxes is wrong or ineffective or not even appropriate all the times. Here's the reality is is we often like to look back and say, oh, I accomplished, I accomplished, I accomplished. But let me tell you some truth. You are not accomplished until we're in eternity with Jesus. So we need to stop pretending. We need to stop pretending that we can check a box and be done with anything in this life. Now, this is a message about prayer, or rather it's the introduction to messages about prayer. But since we want a relationship with God that is more, let's begin to identify a target before we take our shots. By the way, happy birthday, Jesse. See you there. Handsome, bald man. I think bald men are so handsome, don't you? I need to shave my head again. I don't know how they say that. Um, it's getting a little long. People are going to start thinking I'm going to try to be John the Baptist soon. Um, let me rephrase my first question. How normal is your relationship God, with God? That was the question. So, so let me ask the question in a way that identifies a target. Is that okay? Don't get offended yet. There's lots of time to be offended before this message is over. I'm only 15 minutes into a half-hour message. You've got a full 16 minutes of this moment to be offended with me. So here's the question. I'll rephrase. How fun slash life-giving slash passionate slash challenging slash transforming is your relationship with God? See, now that we have defined a target, and probably for some of you a scary one, a scary target, fun, life-giving, passionate, challenging, transforming, those, those are not things I signed up for when I started coming to church. Well, why not? Why not? Why, 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 why wouldn't we identify a target if he has? He ha- he, you know, some of you are saying the question, he, he has? God identified this as a target in my life? Absolutely he did. Absolutely he did. And we'll get to that in a moment. And I think it's time in these days that we let a target be defined so that you and I can redefine some things. You see, it's hard as the pastor to watch people shrink back and fade away and not thrive and see the progress in their life undone. And I want you to know that most of my stress in life actually comes from assessing the health of the flock. <laughs> Truly, it does. I mean, don't worry. We got the same. We got financial stress, and, and we got, I mean, I was feeding my cows yesterday, and somehow a stinking white-tailed deer dropped an antler in my bale yard, and I ran over it with the tractor, and it wrecked probably a $2,800 tractor tire. That's a deflating experience. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Thanks, uh, passionate corner. That was awesome. <laughs> 
And we have all the normal stress everyone else has. But I tell you what, when you're stepping up and leading in the church, and some of you know this well because you're leading well with us, you, you know that there is this strain that comes from watching people, hoping that they're going to grow, hoping that they're moving forward, hoping that the progress of the Holy Spirit is going to be evident in other, to, to other people, but even to themselves. Some of, you, some of you don't see the progress you're making, and you're so discouraged, and I wish I could turn your head to see your own progress. Because you're doing well. You're running well, as it says in Galatians. But you're also being bewitched, thinking that you can continue in the flesh what God began in you in the Spirit. I understand that many things in a church family are not mine to control. But there are many things in a church family that are dependent or are going to bear results based in my efforts within the boundaries of God's grace. And so I'm going to tell you something, and I really hope it's not offensive to you. And the question, again, was how fun slash life-giving slash passionate slash challenging slash transforming is your relationship with God. Please don't be offended, but but I want you to know that I'm not satisfied with the answer. I'm not satisfied with the answer I can give myself. I'm not satisfied with the answer that most of you could give yourselves, and I'm certainly not satisfied with the Church of North America with regard to the answer that we would probably truthfully give ourselves. I sense deep in my heart that God is looking for far more than so many are giving at this moment. Too much is being held back from Him, and here's the problem with that. Holding things back from God does not limit what He can give you but it absolutely limits what you can receive from him. God's not limited in what he can give at any time. It's just a word to him. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, I mean, the Bible literally says that God sustains all things by the power of his word. So it's just a word to him. All he has to do is speak and provision comes to your life. You sit here saying, but I feel like I have no provision in my life. Well, why is that? Can I suggest to you, it's because your life is full of something that's preventing you from his provision. And this isn't about, once again, turning to grade yourself and thinking somehow that you can check the right boxes and do all the right things to make sure you attract God's favor in an extra special way. That's not what it's about at all. And we spent an hour talking with our young adults group about this on Friday night. When you go to the desert, the tendency is to think, I must have done something wrong. I must, God must be taking me here to punish me. There's two desert experiences that I think of in Scripture when we talk about the desert or wilderness experiences. One was Israel leaving Egypt to go to the promised land. The other was Jesus leaving the city and leaving people to go into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. I want you to know there is a common theme between those two events that happened. The Lord did not lead Israel into the wilderness to punish them. Why? If you can think back to this, what God said through Moses to Pharaoh was, you need to let my people go into the wilderness so that they can worship me. Worship was the purpose for Israel leaving the captivity of slavery in Egypt. And yes, there was an end goal called the promised land. But in the journey, what was the journey supposed to be about? It was actually about a worship experience. Jesus, in a similar way, also for 
40 days instead of 40 years, was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness, to the desert. Why? If you read your Bible, it'll tell you to pray and to be tempted, for sure, to be tempted. But even Jesus, drawn by the Spirit, to his wilderness experience where he encountered Satan himself and Satan tried to trick him and tempt him and do all those things. Don't, don't, don't miss this. That God leads us to places because he expects intimacy with us. Whether it's to the mountain or to the valley, God is always wanting to lead us to a place of intimacy with him. This is why God uses the sacrament of marriage as an image for himself and his church. Because as a husband, our role should be, guys, to always be leading our wife to a place of intimacy, which is specifically not always sex. Just, just so we keep it clear, it's much, much more profound than that. I guess I could say that I'm not satisfied with her answer for all of the things I'm sharing, but mostly... I'm concerned that what we are holding on to, our dogma, our tradition, the things that we hold on to as if they're so deeply valuable are limiting what we can do in the kingdom of God. Why did Jesus come? To seek and save those who are lost. That would be a right answer. For sinners, he came for the, the sick, not the healthy. Yeah, that would be a right answer too. Can I, can I give you the overwhelmingly right answer though? The overwhelmingly right answer is found in John chapter 10 verse 10, or uh, yeah, John chapter 10 verse 10 where it says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I came so that they would have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came because we needed rescuing from death and loss to give us life abundantly. And so what should that mean for you and I as followers of Jesus? Now, here's a tendency when we ask that question, you know, how are you, how are you doing? I love Dave Ramsey's answer, better than I deserve. Great answer, true answer, I love it. Um, I've heard some other great answers over the years, but here's what we do in our attempt to be humble. We often, we often then cast our situation against the worst possible situation we can think of. So I have friends who minister in Haiti, love the nation of Haiti, beautiful place, beautiful people, uh, amazing what God is doing there in the local churches, uh, uh, just this amazing transformation happening all the time in that nation. But I tell you what, people here tend to be like, well, you know, if we ask how you're doing or, or, or what's going on or how's that relationship, are you satisfied, what's the level of abundance of your life look like? Well, you know, it's a lot better than Haiti. Well, of, of course it is, but that's a temporal answer. That's a surface answer. That's a, that's a based-in-your-physical-need kind of answer. Because here's the truth. I have friends who live in Haiti with nothing physically compared to what I have, but they sure seem to have a whole lot more abundant life. So the question is, how much abundant life do you have? Not how much stuff do you have. Not, not, not how new is your car, not how big is your house, not how many packages of gum does your mom have in your pantry at home. Because that matters to six-year-olds. That's the ultimate sign of wealth, is it not? My mom went to Costco. She bought six packages of gum. 
And not single packages, the little case law packages. Isn't it funny how as we mature, things of value change, right? And the value of the kingdom of heaven is measured not in packages of gum, not in cars, not in houses, but in the abundance of life. The abundance of life. So, when you answer that question, please don't cast yourself to the latest, against the latest catastrophe in this world. Well, I have a, I'll have it a lot better than the place where the nuclear reactor blew up. Well, of course you do, in a matter of speaking. Of course you have it a lot better than your friend who is going through cancer. Of course, I mean, I, do you understand what I'm trying to get at here? We, we tend, rather than to really answer the question in, a, question, question in a personal way relative to my personal experience with Jesus, we suddenly say, I don't want to be personal, and I'm going to compare myself to other people's situation because that allows me to appear to be more humble than I really am. Do you understand what you're doing is walking into an act of idolatry? Unwittingly, unknowingly, that's what we're doing when we do things like that. We're worshiping at an altar of false humility rather than just admitting that deep down inside, every single one of us wants more from our relationship with God. I desperately want more of God's presence. I desperately want him to move through my life so that I can raise the dead. I desperately want him to move through my life so that I can lay hands on the sick and see them recover. I desperately want him to, to, I don't, I want to be like the apostles. I want my shadow to raise people. Well, Pastor Travis is just being really selfish. No, that's how abundant I want the life of Jesus to be revealed in and through me. That's, if we're being honest, and I hope we are, I believe that every one of us in this room and watching online wants God to do more in us and through us and with us. And we are right to want that. It's a lie from hell that says somehow to want God to move through your life like that is conceited, or rash, or vain. That's a lie. It is not a vain thing to say, Lord, use me. Take my life and use it however you want. That's not a vain thing. It's not a vain conspiracy with self. What it is, is a heart realizing that we were created for more. What it is, is a heart realizing that we should take God at his word when he said, I want to do things in and through you that are exceedingly and abundantly above anything you could ask or think. Well, I like that verse, Pastor, but I mean, I don't literally want to see it applied. Why? Because you're afraid it'll kill you? It might. It killed a few church leaders in history, like literally killed them. comes back to our carnal problem that we are attached to life on earth as if it's the only thing. When it's just a flash in the pan. It's just a blink and it's going to be gone in the expanse of eternity. How abundant is your life today. And 
I understand that at any moment that answer can change based on what we could call the law of normalcy. And I understand that there has to be context because I really have no complaints about my life. I am awe-filled with what I see God doing here. So let me tell you something that you absolutely need to remember going forward. Being content never has to mean you're not contending. When I'm an old, old, old man, if that's the only piece of advice I can still give people, I will give it with all my heart. Because being content in your situation has never had to mean that you should stop contending for more of what God has. And you see, when you understand it that way, do you see how it's false humility? Oh, I've had enough, Lord. I'm so, I'm so grateful. I mean, just look at me. I'm grateful every time someone serves turkey, but I still goes back for more. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah. I think Stephen knows. Amen to that. Right? Gr- gratitude is not the end of something. It's actually the beginning of the next thing. And we need to stop living lives in these compartments all the time that are somehow defining our forward progress and holding us back because nowhere in Scripture have I ever encountered something where the Holy Spirit is leading me to see that this is a stop and this is a pause and you're not going to move forward from this place. You might live in the desert for a while, but you're not stopping because God leads you to barren places. You're processing continually we move forward. That's why we run with endurance the race set before us. It doesn't stop, guys, till we're at the end. Now, because we serve a God who has promised to do exceedingly and abundantly above anything that we could ask or even think, I would like us to keep in mind what Isaiah 54.2 should cause us to remember. Isaiah 54.2 is the verse in the Bible that says, I want you to enlarge the place of your tent. I want you to lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. Why do we need to do that? It's because we serve a God who is not only doing a new thing that we can't even possibly be aware of, but just for the simple fact that He is always doing exceedingly and abundantly above all anything we could ask or think. I mean, how big do you have to be to get around the exceedingly above and abundantly above that God wants to do. You might sit here this morning saying, well, I don't believe that God can do that for me. Well, then you have an identity problem. What that tells me is you're not quite comfortable with who he says you are yet. And this is not a blow-me-up, make-me-proud message, guys. You still can't think highly, more highly of yourself than you ought to. We can't think that we're better than other people. We need to understand that as much as my relationship with Jesus is so personal, that my relationship with Jesus is purely corporate as well. He loves all of you, and I'm the one he loves. Well, how can that be? That's because he's God. Duh. It's because he is who he is that he can do the things he can do. Let the word of God measure you with this verse. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Love must be free of hypocrisy. Detest what is evil. 
Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. How's your relationship with God? How is your devotion? How is your clinginess for what is good? Are you one who absorbs everything that's good, or are you already full of something else? How well are you preferring others? This is a conversation we have in our house almost daily because we have four teenagers at the same time. And they're good kids. I know sometimes I tease them with our church family here. And, and I, I, I don't think you would ever think less of my kids. They are amazing kids. They're phenomenally well-behaved. They are, they are wonderful. They love Jesus. Their hearts are right before God as much as any people's hearts can be right before God. But, but I tell you what, it's a, it's, it's a regular, painfully regular conversation. Uh, hey, team, you need to prefer each other. But how are you doing with preferring others? How, how, how's your diligence doing today? How's your fervor in serving? I don't feel very fervorous about serving. I know, we can see. <clears throat> yeah, but seriously, we can see. And you know, we love you and it's okay because we're in a place, we're in a process. Um, how's your devotion to prayer going? Well, I started a new prayer program. Can I just tell you, interject this? Maybe what you don't need is a prayer program. Maybe you just, you just need to intentionally seek the Lord. And if a prayer program helps you do that, then you should do that. Again, to stop, stop thinking you can make a list, check the boxes, and get there. That Making lists does not make you intentional. Um, are you a contributor to the needs of the saints? <clears throat> and finally, are you practicing hospitality? What does that mean? That directly or clearly translated, it means basically, are you loving strangers? Hospitality is the practice of loving strangers. Are you seeing to the needs of the saints? Are you practicing hospitality? How are you doing in these things. Create a legitimate target and ask how abundant is my life in Christ? Because I think we're going to be dissatisfied. Whether in a godly way or not, we're going to be dissatisfied with our answer. And so here's the thing. If you answer to any of these questions, I'm doing less than great. Congratulations. You're just like the rest of us. You are, for all intents and purposes, normal. And maybe, again, this is why I harp on the, bar, the box shepherd. <laughs> I harp on the box checkers. Because if being right is all you live for, you will never actually live. If, if checking off that you've accomplished something is all you live for, I, I mean, I just I can't figure out where the joy comes in. I can't figure out how you keep ahead 
making lists for you to check off and what you're missing in the meantime. We've got to learn to just do the next right thing according to what the Spirit of God is leading us to do. Let me say it again for some of you. We've got to just do the next right thing according to what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. Because that's how you get progress. That's how you move forward in faith. That's how you begin to experience abundant life. Um, abundant life is in the pursuit of who God is calling us to be. That's where you're going to find abundant life. Because God is actually with us in that pursuit. Does that make sense to you? It's the pursuit of God, who he's calling us to be, where we're going to find life abundantly. See, Jesus came that, they may, that, that we would have life and have it abundantly but how does, that, how does that actually work out? Well, in the following of Jesus, abundant life comes to us. And if we don't follow Jesus, naturally, there will not be his abundant life. So it's in the process that we are with him, and it's in that same process that then he is with us. There are going to be dry times, desert times, as we talked about with you guys on Friday night, and there will be times of ease. I like the song we sing. Uh, we used to sing from Hill songs. We probably still do. But I'll praise him on the mountains, and I'll praise him when the mountain's in my way. The God of the mountain is still God of the valley. Guys, there are mountaintop experiences, and there are valley floor experiences. There are, there are uh, what did you call it, Tyson, the canyon? The slot canyon experiences, and there are the grand canyon experiences. And it's not the experience that holds the value, but the experiencing. Because that's the part that Jesus is with you in. That's the discipleship component. That's the bending of your will part. Now again, you might think that this turns into a message then on emotionalism and the rhetoric of feel-good Christianity, but please don't write it off as that. Following Jesus actually does demand passion from you. It actually demands passion from you. Just like all meaning relationships, meaningful relationships do. All meaningful relationships require passion. Maybe the word passion is too emotional of a word for you. The worship team can come back. I'm about done. So men, typically, if the word passion is just too emotional for you, too sexual for you, I don't know what else it could be for you, but if it's just too much for you, then by all means consider the word zeal. Zeal. To me, I suppose the word zeal seems a little manlier. At least it's got harder, uh, kind of a harder consonant in it, right? But I want you to pay attention to the word zeal because most importantly, Jesus was full of zeal. John 2, 13 to 17, when Jesus goes to the temple, overturns the tables of the money changers. You remember this story? It's why. The Bible says, zeal for your house 
consumes me. What was Jesus' problem when he made a whip and drove the moneylenders out of the temple? What was his problem? And we move to spiritual answers like, well, it was blasphemous because they were, they were, turning, they were turning the church and turning the temple into a, into a robber's den. Let me drop this on you, and I hope, I pray that by the Holy Spirit today, this will land in your heart like a nuclear bomb. Jesus was consumed with zeal over the issue of prayer. How so? When Jesus drove them out of the temple, what was his accusation? He said, you have taken my father's house which is a house of prayer and turn it into a robber's den. Don't miss it. Jesus was deeply offended by the attack on the intimacy of prayer. That they would relegate this place where people could come to be in and experience the presence of God, to worship Him, to offer their requests, to offer their thanks, to experience His presence. That they had taken that holy and beautiful thing and turned it into something that was just a stock exchange, quite literally. If Jesus was filled with zeal, can someone tell me why it would be acceptable for any of us to not be consumed with zeal? As followers of Christ, convince me that we are not to be filled with zeal. I got a little more for you. Titus chapter 2 tells us that we are to be zealous, filled with zeal for good works. As followers of Christ, we are to be passionate about good works. Romans 12, again, specifically verse 11 reminds us, Romans 12 verse 11, never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal. Zeal and fervor are words that are undeniably associated with passion. And we need to care a lot more about this. And if we don't care more about it, can I submit to you this morning as a brother in Christ who loves you, who wants to come alongside of you, That if we are not filling ourselves, if we're not being filled, if we're not sensing passion in our relationship with God, in our prayer life, in our worship experience, in the times we come together to break bread, in 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 the everyday of life, if we are constantly never feeling passion, never working for intimacy, there is something integrally wrong, and we need to address it. We need to be intentional about this pursuit of a relationship with Jesus. Intentionality will do more than you could ever imagine for your progress as a prayer, 
as in a person who prays. Intentionality alone will make you more intentional. That's so dumb, but it's so true. Intentionality on its own will make you more intentional. Here's what's burning in my heart for our church. Our community, this world, needs passionate followers of Jesus to bring his gospel to their lives. Passionate people to serve, passionate people to give, passionate people to pray like this generation has never prayed before. I mean, what's the point of praying to the Lord of life if we really don't want the life that he offers? Stephen, you kind of hit this one on the head. Why be here? Can I tell you something? COVID has showed us that there are a lot of people who just didn't want to be here. Not necessarily in our church. I'm speaking of the church as a whole in North America, maybe. People didn't want to be here. And that's not a good thing. But it should be a stark reminder and a challenge and maybe even a warning to us. Tell you what, these are days when passion for my relationship with Jesus is actually not what drives me all the time. Do you want to know what drives me some days? Some days it's your passion for Jesus. Or lack thereof. But see, that, that's what it means to prefer one another. That's what it means to bear one another's burdens. That's what it means to come together. You see, there's all kinds of people in this world who want the benefit of church, but they don't want to make the relational sacrifice for church. And that has to do specifically with a lack of zeal for the abundant life that Jesus has for us. So, Passion has a funny way of seeping into everything around it. And again, this is a message on prayer. It's just really the preamble to the series on prayer. But passion has a funny way of seeping into everything around it. Just like oil seeps into the grains of wood when you apply it and begins to bring out all the natural beauty that's in the grain of that wood. And it has other benefits, of course, for the wood as well. Passion and zeal for Jesus seep into our prayer life and into our marriages and into our families and into our worship experience. The places that we work and serve. Can I just tell you that passion and zeal are more infectious than COVID? <laughs> but, but somehow the church has been letting COVID be more infectious than passion. Still, it's been two and a half years, guys. When are you going to stop letting this thing? I mean, we got to deal with it. We got to we got to we got to run around the trees. We can't run through the trees. But how long are you going to let it be the greater influence in your place of work? How long are you going to let it be the greater influence in your life, in your family, in your faith walk, in how you pray? I mean, come on. An ounce of passion in your life will bring out the true life-giving grain. The beauty of who God has made you to be. Passion, like oil, will reveal that. 
<sighs> I got to be done. I've used up all the time that I wanted to use up today. Let me close with this, and I'm going to let, I don't know, Amy or Tyson do the rest. Your prayer life and your passion are tied closely together by what you choose to be intentional about. So we start with worship and thanks when we bring our requests to God. Good prayer life will always look like worship and thanksgiving before we get to our requests. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Listen to what Jesus said when he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, you're holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now we move to the requests. So Lord, give us what we need today. And forgive our sins. You get it? It begins, a passionate, zeal-filled prayer life begins with worship. The acknowledgement of his goodness and his greatness and his kindness and his mercy and his love, and we could go on and on. If you can just grasp this reality with me, we will begin to see God do the exceedingly and abundantly above we could ask or think kind of things. All right. Let's sing. Thank you for joining us in another podcast from Generations Church. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe to our podcast channel to get a new one each week. For additional information or to partner with us, please check out our website at www.genchurch.ca.